You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Dr. Matthew Bennett about his recent publication of the more than 20,000-year-old footprints in White Sands National Park. We are so excited to talk with Dr. Bennett, but Crystal, I just want to check in. How was your week? Anything new? It was a great week, you know, pretty low-key, so not too much to discuss today, but what about you, Nancy? Yeah, same thing, other than really just that we got our first snow here in Montana. I, I did. Right, winterproofing everything was um, a little bit much. We yeah. had a big boot sale at the store, um, <laughs> so we could keep that going. Um, so footprints, boot sale, it's yeah, all coming it's all together. Coming together today. Yeah. That's so That's so great. Well, we are so glad to have you with us today, Dr. Bennett. Welcome. Thank you. I want to start off first, Dr. Bennett, by telling our listeners a little bit about you, um, just to give them some background. Dr. Bennett's passion for geography comes from a childhood spent in Snowdonia. And if I'm correct, that's a national park in Wales. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. It looks beautiful. Just a little bit I did digging into it. I think I have a trip planned in my future, Crystal. (laughs) That sounds great. Yeah. And that experience has led him to work throughout the world on a range of projects. In the 1990s, he worked on a range of glacial and quaternary projects in the Arctic, as well as throughout the UK. He has published widely on aspects of glaciology, sedimentology, and geomorphology. Matthew joined Bournemouth University in 2002 and started work in Mexico on problems of quaternary stratigraphy, environmental archaeology, and volcanic hazards. He became Dean of Applied Sciences from 2007 to 2010. And in 2007, he also joined the Kubi for a field school. That's always been a dream of mine. So definitely a bit of green jealousy over here. (laughs) And his work on the footprints um, on that project was published in Science in 2009. Since then, Matthew has worked extensively throughout Africa with support from the NERC and has published widely on ancient footprints. In 2014, he wrote a research textbook on the study of human footprints, and in 2015, he co-launched a research institute at Bournemouth University, the Institute for Landscape Studies and Human Evolution, and is currently writing a textbook on human evolution for Springer. In 2015, Matthew was awarded an innovation grant by NERC to translate his footprint research into a practical tool for use by forensic scientists. And Matthew's current research involves ecological modeling of hominin evolution using a range of landscape and ancient-based models. 
Wow, very impressive. And so much more we'd love to talk to you about, but we're going to focus on white sands today. Right, right. So Dr. Bennett, we always begin by asking our guests how they became interested in the subject they study. And in your case, that's geology and environmental geography. You've worked often with archaeologists as well, helping them to interpret the geological context of artifacts and other remnants of ancient human activity. So please tell us when and how you first became interested in this field and how you began collaborating on archaeological projects. I've always had a passion for landscapes. I love um, landscapes and I love looking at the clues that they contain about the past, whether it be geological clues or clues about ancient peoples. So it's landscapes that drive my passion and I, I had a very varied career, and it was really in the, uh, I suppose, the, the early noughts that I began to start working um, on archaeological problems. And I got interested in, in footprints and the application of uh, new technologies at the time. It was the 3D digital capture um, of footprints, and that really took me on a journey to become, you know, something of a human footprint expert. And at that point, I'm, you know, often called upon um, and invited around the world to look at human footprints. And I've often dreamed going back to my roots, which is in in glacial geology, but I keep on being dragged into these archeological um, problems and and they're fun. And I I, I love collaborating with people and I, I don't like, um, scientists pigeonholed into little, you know, I'm an archaeologist, I'm a geographer, I'm a geologist. I have called myself whatever is necessary to get a job done, whether it be an, a, a geoarchaeologist, an archaeologist, geographer, geologist. It's all one and the same to me. It's the study of the past, whether it's the recent past or the ancient past. And um, I love interdisciplinary collaborative science. I love that you're writing a textbook on hominin evolution, and it'll it'll be interesting to see what, how your perspective or how the tone differs. I know there's there's always a lot of contention in paleoanthropology. I don't know how many paleoanthropologists you know well, but I see you shaking your head. Yeah, I mean, we interviewed Bill Kimball, and one of my very good friends, Dr. Shara Bailey, is a paleoanthropologist um, well known for studying teeth. And you know that field is there's so many big discoveries that make a lot of news, and then there's a lot of varied interpretations that get emphasized in different ways depending on what camp you're in. So it'd be really interesting to have your perspective um, on that textbook. I often teach a human prehistory class, so I'll keep my eye out for that. Um, So we wanna ask you a little bit about, um, or start to dive into about really what has been making news all over the place um, a couple of weeks ago. So the article that you published in the journal Science in which your team details the human footprints that were found in sediments uncovered in White Sands National Park in New Mexico. And I hadn't realized that these had been found originally or had been known about since the 1930s, but it seems like this detailed work has really been going on for at least a decade. Um, But this new research has been able to actually date these footprints. Now they've been found in association with other extinct mammals, mastodon, mammoth, sloth. So people knew they were 
quite old, at least um, 10, 12, 13,000 years old. But this is the first time they've actually been dated, and the dates came back to over 20,000 years ago. Um, so I've been teaching human prehistory myself for over a decade, and I know that there are lots of sites that have evidence of this, what we call pre-Clovis occupation, you know, so older than um, 11, 13,000 years ago. But um, this site seems to be one that is universally acknowledged as not being um, squishy on the dates, let's just say, that the dates seem a lot uh, more firm. People are in agreement about how the information was recovered. So I want to get into that um, a little bit more in a bit, but suffice it to say, you know, this has been all over the news and a lot of people have heard about it already, but just to refresh our listeners' memories, can you just describe what the human footprints themselves are like um, and a little bit of their geological context? So paint a picture for us just to get us started. Yeah, let's, let's, let's backtrack slightly and think about white sands people know white sands for lots of different reasons they the the largest gypsum dunes in the world the missile range the shuttle landing strip lots of different reasons that they know white sands and the tracks of white sands have been known around for a long time you know some of the early sloth uh, tracks that are present were originally attributed to bigfoot for example and, and the mammoth tracks have been known um, for about a decade. But really, it was a guy, David Bustos, who's the resources manager at the uh, National Park, that began to believe in the idea that there were actually human footprints there. And he got himself into a position where he was fairly confident that he had them, but he didn't have the, um, the confidence to go further. So in 2016... Um, he reached out to me, and I went out there for the first time in 2017 to look at the, um, the tracks that they had. And one of the things I would say about White Sands is the tracks are very enigmatic. They, we call them ghost tracks because they disappear and appear with different changes of, in moisture on the old lake bed. And it's very, very difficult to study, difficult to actually comprehend. And... We started to work on the animal tracks because they seemed easier. And in the Easter of 2017, um, we discovered the association of clear human footprints with uh, giant ground sloth. And we brought that story out in 2018, which was a, a hunting story about them hunting sloth. But the thing about these tracks, and there are lots of lots of locations, um, it's probably the largest track site in the world, uh, certainly in the Americas. Um, one of the problems is that the, the tracks don't have good stratigraphic um, control. You'll get a bunch of tracks and they'll be overstepping between extinct megafauna and a human track and vice versa. So you know that, that the terminal Pleistocene, terminal ice age, you don't really know much more than that. And in many ways, the dating of the tracks is not the interesting part of the story. The interesting part of the story is the interaction of Ice Age megafauna with, with humans. And most footprint sites are very small. They're two or three, maybe a dozen footprints. But these are tens of thousands of footprints. And you can actually follow individual people, individual animals on a scale that 
you can't do anywhere else in the world. And I think that's what I want to emphasize is the behavioral context that's really important. And in many ways, I knew that dating them could be a problem because, um, you know, there's so much rhetoric and controversy around the peopling of the Americas that I, I was very reluctant to go there. And it was only really in September 2019 on my ninth field visit to the site that we actually went to a site we'd been to many times and the moisture conditions were just right that we could see a line of tracks um, going into a very shallow slope, a, a shallow bluff, a shallow cliff. And at that point, I suppose we both knew, David and I, that, that we could probably date them. And it was with a sort of degree of trepidation that we decided that we had to. It wasn't with enthusiasm. It wasn't with a, a, a real rush to do it. It was a, a, so interesting. Now I, it I know. Like, was, yeah. Oh, oh, I, I mean, I'd use an expletive, but I, I won't. <laughs> but no, we've got to. We've got to do this. So we had the USGS out in January 2022 um, date the tracks that we excavated, and then COVID happened, which really put a, a real. Um, um, hold on much of the, the research. And that's where we are. So it, it is, it, it's got a, a strange history. I haven't really answered your question, which is what the environment is like. But if you look at the moment and think about it at the moment, or you um, look it up on the internet, it's a flat, barren, white plain, uh, flat surface. And in the past, it would have been still quite arid, but it was probably a patchwork of water bodies. You know, after the rains, seasonal rains, it might have been a lake, more likely a patchwork of water bodies, quite a diverse landscape, still quite arid. And it's on the margins of this wetland that the, the footprints that we have dated uh, occur. And um, they're preserved in very fine-grained um, sands, infilled sometimes with windblown gypsum crystals, sometimes by washed sediment coming down, down the sub. So there, there are in a variety of materials in this shallow bluff that we've excavated. So Matthew, let me just ask a couple of quick questions before we move on. Was, um, was um, is it David Bustos? Is that his name for the, with the park service? That's correct. Yeah. Was he then excavating, just following out some tracks before you had gotten involved with the project, just to kind of understand and see where they went? So were some of them already exposed? No, 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 no. We, um, I think, I think the thing that you, one of the challenges at White Sands is that the tracks appear a bit as if you had um, just got out of the shower and were leaving wet footprints on on the ground. They're really, really near surface in many cases. On, on the, in the, the, there's a lot of variety. It's a huge site, so the footprints occur in slightly different ways in different places. But in many places, if you just scrape back the top centimeter of the surface, you reveal the the tracks literally as if somebody just put wet feet on on, on the ground in in the colours of sediment. And I think that that's one of the most challenging um, things about it is that you don't have to necessarily. Um, dig very far to find them and they appear and disappear because it's all about the moisture that picks picks them out so they're very enigmatic as to whether you actually are confident that you have them and 
he sort of knew he had uh, sort of bipedal animals, but, um, you know, a giant ground sloth oversteps in a way that it actually is quite a bipedal looking trail. So um, he hadn't really done very much until we started getting involved. And again, that sort of start in 2017 was the, the science really getting serious on looking at the, the so actually mapping the footprints having the scale of them being able to determine relationships between what appear to be human ones with other mammals and things like that from 2017 yes but, it, yes, but it's the thing to think about is it, it's a huge area it's a really really huge area so we're looking at lots of little sites on that surface and you know Lots of small-scale investigations that sometimes link together, sometimes don't. Uh, they're all in the broad, broad ball, same ballpark of age, although not necessarily as not necessarily twenty thousand years. But basically, they are um, lots of different studies, lots of different patches that that we can sample the past, and I think that's the way to look at it. Each of these little inv investigations. Shallow investigations is a bit like a snapshot into the past. It provides us with a film clip of, of what was happening on the playa of this uh, lake bed um, in the past. It sounds like you have so much, um, so much more work to do out there, <laughs> looking at these little bits and pieces, you know, and kind of putting them all together. It's like a puzzle. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, um, Matthew, you know, talking about the dating of the human footprints, but you've also mentioned that there's other animal footprints out there, like the giant sloth, some of this megafauna. What other animals or footprints are you finding out there besides the sloth? Okay, so there's a range of... Um, Canids, dog-like um, tracks, probably dire wolf in some cases, camel, um, and um, giant ground sloth, mammoth are the main main things that are there. Um, we have a couple of birds, but um, not many birds. And and one of the things you've got to think about uh, when you look at a footprint site is that there is a ratio between how heavy the animal is and how soft the ground is. So um, a very light bird, even, even a big eagle, actually doesn't make much of an impression on the ground unless it's very, very soft. So you're only sampling part of the fauna, the only part of the animal community in the footprints because of this relationship between body size and how soft the sediment is at a particular time. So yeah, a sample what the flora is, uh, sorry, fauna is. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the article you mentioned earlier that you published where you were sort of investigating that hunting scene. So the 2018 publication where you were able to determine that there were sloth prints and then human footprints within those prints that made it look as if a human was um, stalking from behind, um, following within, and then just what um, ways you could reconstruct some of the behaviors. When we think about humans hunting sloths or anything larger that was the megafauna around at that time, at this point now, we're nowhere talking about 
over 20,000 years ago, which probably wasn't what you knew at the time you, you guys were first investigating this because you didn't have dates, but there were no Clovis points at that, at that time. You were yeah, talking about a time much earlier. Um, I'll go yeah, ahead. You want to I, say Can I stop you there? Because yeah. by making an assumption that just because we have one locality at White Sands dated at 20,000, but all the localities date from that time and they don't. They probably date from a succession of times from uh, over maybe 10,000 years. So each of these sites is, is not necessarily constrained by the dates of the one site. Often when you get a footprint surface, it's isochronous, it's the same age. And therefore, if they run around on one part and you date another part, the same dates apply. Okay. But in this it, it, it doesn't imply that at all. Different parts of this surface may have been active at different times. And therefore, we don't know, in terms of the hunting scene, what the age of that, that was. It could have been a real terminal Pleistocene only 13,000, 14,000 years ago. Um, and in other cases, you see, we can't make assumptions about the dates. And that's one of the really important things that we have to emphasize here. Some of the tracks have been dated to 20,000 years ago, but not, doesn't mean all the tracks that are present. Are okay. Well, thank, thank you for clarifying that. Cause my mind was um, going down with all sorts of interesting questions, um, <laughs> but that gets back to the, for me, to the point too, with the respect to the 2018 article, um, which I'd love you to explain a little more of what the prints looked like, but also because of the, the, the gypsum and the type of sediments that are there, we don't get very good or any preservation of bone, really. It doesn't fossilize. It deteriorates more rapidly than maybe it would in other contexts where you have volcanic deposits or something else. Um, so we don't have, for example, skeletons of sloth showing up there or human bone or good preservation of other things. So Talk a little bit of, then about how this is just giving us a different window into the human-animal interaction than we might otherwise get. The point the power of footprints is that it's a moment in time and it's the interaction of one animal with another. So in the context of the sloth story, we clearly have a line of, uh, well, more than one line of sloth prints with humans actually overstriding in order to step in the sloth Right. Now, you can interpret that in lots of different ways. You could interpret it as a bunch of teenagers just fooling around, pretending to be sloth, for example, and, and being in order to place one foot in the other as, as he moves down. The point is, is, when you follow that line down, you end up in what we call a flailing circle, in which there's some big parallel um, sloth tracks, and there's an awful lot around it. In, in a circular fashion, sort of uh, claw marks and basically our marks and irregular marks that seem to imply that, that the, the sloth was rearing up and turning and swinging it, its arms. And as it was swinging its arms, it, it's touching down for balance as it goes around. And when you put that whole story together, you begin to say, well, actually, um, these are occurring at the same time. It's the same light, same sloth that suddenly turns this behavior. And it's almost as if basically it was irritated for, to, uh, by um, whoever was behind it and making a, a to-do. 
And then, you know, clearly these movements as it swings around. And then we've got these very fine toe impressions of somebody coming in on their toes, agile, on their thing, their toes, and then stopping. So you can begin, just like a crime scene, you can begin to build together a story, a whodunit of what's been taking place, which is why we came up with this particular idea that they were stalking or baiting, if you like, the, the, the giant ground sloth. Um, and the presumption is that it was for hunting purposes. Um, but, you know, it could have just been for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy think, uh, late place to seem fun on right, the uh, right. on the place. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a, a, a sloth is a fearsome, fearsome animal, and you only have to look at the ranginess of 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 its um, of its uh, forepaws paws and the a really really sharp extended knife like uh, claws it's got. You wouldn't you wouldn't mess around with this. So, you know. A fun is one thing, but patient, this would have been extremely dangerous fun. So it probably had a purpose. And the purpose was almost certainly to distract the animal while somebody could get in, uh, uh, not necessarily a fatal blow, um, but uh, a wounding blow. And then the animal would run off. And we don't find a body print, you know, the, the sloth lying dead on the ground. So it would have run off. Um, perhaps um, bled to death and being tracked um, until that point. But you're saying that also that we wouldn't get necessarily bones preserved from these well, animals. As you quite rightly say, the environment is not really very conducive to the preservation of bone. Um, and I can tell you that there is nothing in the footprint record at that site to show um a body, a body print, and you do get body prints um, at sites, and we've got mammoth body prints in other places at White Sands. So you do know, you do get body prints, and even if it's not a very nice outline, like a chalked outline of crime scene, it would at least be a very, very disturbed patch, and we don't have that. So um, whatever happened to this this sloth, um, it, it got away. And um, whether it got away and lived or whether it was tracked away, we don't know. Okay. All right. So we're going to take just a quick station break, um, Matthew. So you are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with Dr. Matthew Bennett about the discovery of over 20,000-year-old human footprints in White Sands National Park. So, Matthew, let's um, talk a little bit more about these footprints. I was fascinated reading the article when you were talking about these footprints as um, having different sizes. You could tell whether the footprints were male or female. Um, you talk in the article about many of the footprints being children and teenagers and women. So can you tell us a little bit about the methods that you use to date the age of the footprints, but also tell us about how you determine whether these footprints are male or female. And I'm assuming that you're, you're telling that these are children, that the footprints are from children because they're smaller, but maybe you could just, I'm sure it's a lot more detailed than that. So maybe you could just outline that for us. Yeah. Um, just to clarify, I don't think we actually say that they're male or female. 
because um, determining the sex of a footprint is uh, quite a complicated thing. So um, in the original article, we do suggest that they are teenagers, children, and, and a few adults in there. And that's a fairly easy um, thing to determine, although there is an assumption in that. So um, child development is very well documented. You know, you, you have a child and they measure every part of it as it grows up to make sure that it's, it's meeting some norm of, of, of growth. So the standard growth curves. And there's lots of uh, those growth curves developed by the World Health Organization mainly, um, but there are others. And um, so what you do is you, you, you pick a growth curve that shows the, size, the, the size of the, the, the foot through time. And certainly up to about the age of 12, um, you can be fairly confident um, to infer the age from size, basically, is what you're doing. Now, there's some nutritional assumptions in there. You know, where the people in the past as well um, nutritioned. <laughs> want a better word if that is really a word um as um as those in um, the present etc but notwithstanding those sorts of assumptions you can make a first order guess at how um old they were and that's where we come up with uh, teens or um children once they get older than 12 um humans begin to um have sexual dimorphism so males and female feet begin to um separate out and therefore it gets slightly more complicated. But again, you can make a reasonable estimate as to whether it's a teenager, a young teenager. Once you're into the late teens, no, it could be a young adult or whatever. But you make a first-order estimate as to what the age, and most of the tracks are children and teenagers. Now, does that mean that there were a lot of children and teenagers on the site? Not necessarily. Because one of the things to think about is that adults are much more economical about their movements. And children are not, and teenagers are not. They, they bob around, they dance around, they move around an awful lot. And therefore, it's important to remember that it could be a sampling thing. The reason that we have a lot of children and, 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 and teenagers is just that they left more tracks. Um, and only time will help us address those. So uh, had it not been for COVID, then we would um, be further advanced in our excavation. We will be back excavating in January of this uh, coming year. And at that point, we will expand some of these um, stratigraphically secure surfaces and improve the sample. And as the sample grows, we should get a better idea as to what the composition of the group actually was. I think it's fascinating to just think about us applying, you know, what we know today about children and teens and how they move around to, you know, populations that were 13,000, 20,000 years ago or something like that. They're modern humans and, you know, these growth curves, however well they may apply, you know, they give us a baseline, but also just this insight into the behavior, you know, that we're seeing. So in, in the case of the tracks where you have what looks like perhaps a teenager carrying a much younger child for part of it, the child is put down for part of it and then picked up again. You can actually see which hip the child might be carried on the way we would carry them today. 
Um, that must be an extraordinary experience to be looking at those prints and to be looking at the data you get from them. And then to make that connection to something so normal that goes on in our own child raising, you know, habits. Yeah, I think it is um, in, in two ways. One, when you think about footprints versus more conventional archaeological evidence, let's say a stone tool, um, we've all left a footprint at some point, whether it's a, a damp foot, two-dimensional footprint on the bathroom floor or whether it's a footprint on a beach or on a lake shore. We've all done it. We've all had that experience. Very few of us, and certainly not me, have ever made a stone tool. So basically it's that connection. Footprints connect us in a, in a way to the past because we've all had that experience. We've all left footmarks at some stage. So there's a greater connection. The other thing is that it makes you question, you know, um, Western um Childhood is a very um, strange thing. And it's a very, very different thing than perhaps our perceptions of what childhood would have been like in the past. Absolutely. So my children have, have, have just come in from school. They've been, a, 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 my youngest has been in childcare. Basically, they're in a very protected bubble, um, you know. It, but in the past, they would have been out. Uh, with me as I would have been, you know, walk, striding across the, the playa, hunting, processing, taking part and learning experientially uh, in, in, and not in this sort of like bubble of cotton wool we tend to put um, our younger generations in. So it's, it's quite nice to sort of contrast um, the, the, the work, the, the childhood now with what he might have been in, in in the past, the very idea, I mean, I have teenagers as well. So the very idea that I could ask my teenagers to do the fetching and carrying, which might be one interpretation of why there's an awful lot of teenage footprints in the past, is it, it's just strange. And it, and it, it connects in a, in a, in a quite a, um, interesting and, and divergent sort of way. I think you see so much in hunter-gatherer societies where we do have that information. You do see so many teenagers or, or even younger children doing a lot of the child minding. You know, women might be off gathering and things like that. And you, you see that it's much more of a, a group kind of behavior and that multiple levels are going on. And just as you said, I mean, these, I mean, you kind of remember what it's like to walk barefoot across some kind of squishy mud or lakeshore and, and how, how fun that can be and the, the splashing sounds that you make, the mud between your toes and all of that, but also just that freedom that you're like, wow, this is really fun until, oops, there's a giant sloth coming, so we better turn around. <laughs> I mean, I, I find like there's this new show on right now, Crystal. It's called La Brea, I think, like I after the tar that. pits. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I've been seeing the commercials and I think they are doing a sloth in that. And I don't know if it compares well with what the the North American sloth would have been like um, at that time. But I, it just got me thinking that sloth looked like it definitely could have taken out a whole bunch of humans with um, one swipe. Um, so the footprints are very timely. I wanted to ask again about the dates because 20 over 20,000 years to me is not surprising, um, although I think to a lot of the general public, it might be surprising. Crystal and I were talking about this earlier, and we were realizing, you know, when we went through school, 
and learn things. You know, I've, I've had to teach, so I've been trying to keep up on things, but when I left school, you know, it was Clovis first was the, the thought. So we're realizing, you know, I've been aware of the fascinating information coming out of different sites in Oregon and Paisley Cave and um, sites in Chile, such as Monteverde, sites in Florida, um, all over that have been having earlier dates um, anywhere between, you know, 14 to 20,000 years ago. And there's been a lot of... Um, pushback. Some of these dates have been more accepted than others, but I would always be teaching with my students and saying, right now I could say, certainly I feel like people were here by 15,000 years ago. And that's important. And I, and I would always say also, I, I think we're going to find more that shows older because now people are looking in different places. So the problem with 15,000 years ago and Clovis first was that um, the story I've been told from the, the the small amount of geology I read is that you have that ice sheet that's covering most of North America blocking um, an inland passageway from Beringia, so that land bridge that would have connected um, Siberia to Alaska. So we know that doesn't really probably open up enough and get plants growing in it until about 12,500 years ago or something like that. So this idea of a coastal route has become um, considered much more possible than ever before and likely. And, you know, this idea that there maybe there's a kelp highway, also that these coastal areas may not have been really covered by the glaciers, and also that the sea level was a lot lower. Um, so now a lot of sites that maybe would have been along the coast have been covered up. And so people are proposing a Pacific coastal route, and maybe all also an Atlantic coastal route known as the Salutrian hypothesis. And we have so many, so much evidence that people are in parts of South America, Central America, Eastern North America, probably by 14, 15,000 years ago, if not more. So for me, this information comes as welcome confirmation that we have had people making their ways to the Americas, probably by watercraft, much earlier, you know, far earlier than Clovis and finding their way to making a living on this landscape without those big, beautiful fluted points. You know, we have some artifacts coming out of the Galt site in Texas and all of that that are showing us maybe what some earlier stone tools looked like. The Manus Mastodon site where a, man a mammoth is found dead, well, found dead, the remains are found and there's a point embedded in the mastodon that itself, the point is made from another mastodon that was um, presumably scavenged or killed. So it's it's fascinating to start to think about what 20,000 years ago would have looked like now that we have some of these dates. But it also bears really directly on the, the argument about whether the megafauna went extinct more due to climate change or more due to hunting by these early indigenous peoples in the Americas. And if 20,000 is correct and other dates stand for when these megafauna were still around, we're looking now at more like seven, eight or 10,000 years of cohabitation before that extinction. So I've just thrown a whole bunch of stuff at you and, um, 
I was shocked to hear that you were not excited about going after the dates. And that just shows me that you're not really an archaeologist <laughs> in your heart because an archaeologist would have been like, I don't care if this is controversial. I'm going for it. But I love, I love that reaction and it's such a different perspective, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on whether you like it or not, how this research bears on all of those really interesting um, discussions about the peopling of the Americas. There's a lot in there, but um, let's just start with a general statement, and I think it's very important, a general statement. There is an awful lot and has been over decades of hot air rhetoric and controversy about the peopling of the Americas, and there's no doubt about that. And in some um, cases, people almost hold their positions with re religious zeal about how they view the particular de debate. And one of the problems when you get such a controversy is to actually go back to the data and always to be driven by the data and always to actually stop and say, well, you know, what is the data that's absolutely we, we can really say, yep. What is the data that is a little bit more, well, could be, might be? And really to think about that. And what we really need in this debate more than anything else is good, solid data points. And I believe, and I'm biased here, of course, that White Sands is one of those solid data points. But it's very important that we don't then arm wave beyond what that data point can, can actually say. So what that data point said is somebody was south of the big ice sheet barrier during the last glacial maximum, which was around 20,000 years. Okay. So we know that. We don't know how they got there. We don't know what, where they came from. We don't know whether they were a small band that died out or whether there is continuity uh, with those people, with uh, indigenous um, peoples. We don't know. Okay, It's just a data point. So my response, first of all, is let's go out and find more data points. Because my real point and passion about this debate is that White Sands is not unique. Right. It shows you to a type of evidence that people have not been looking for. There are lots of dry lake beds and pliers throughout the American Southwest. And I'll guarantee that they all have footprints. They all have an archive. And if we were to take a time machine 10 years into the future and look back at, on these debates, we would, I hope, see White Sands as an opening up of a new archive into uh, studies of the peopling of the uh, um, Americas and footprints and those, uh, the player archive, as I like to refer to it, is just waiting to be, to be, to be explored. Let's just also then, if we just put that aside for a minute and just think about how these people might have got there. What's very important is to think about a series of pathways and doors. Okay? So the Bering Land Bridge, they, you, know, you could walk from um, Siberia into Alaska um, at about 30,000 years ago. So there was enough water stored up in the ice sheets at that time so that sea levels were low enough so you could walk into Alaska. So, but across North America, east to west, were two 
large ice sheets, what we call the Laurentide ice sheet, which is situated above Hudson Bay, and the Cordelian ice sheet on the mountains on the west coast. And these two ice sheets basically come together slowly and progressively to close the ice three corridor that you talked about. The traditional model is that everybody was penned up north of this barrier, um, waiting for the door to open. But of course, people could have gone through that door before it closed. And so it's just as likely that people went through the ice free corridor, you know, in the um, late 20s, thousand years, and then streamed south before the barrier closed and then found themselves isolated by that barrier. Um, and that's before you start thinking about options for a kelp highway or a Pacific routing. So white sands doesn't help you with those debates, but lots of white sands, in plural, uh, lots of localities will. And I think that that's what I find the most exciting thing here. And it's part of a, a renaissance if you like, in ecology. And ecology is the study of traces. And um, the number of discoveries of human footprints in the last five years has gone exponentially high. Yes. yes. And that's because of excavators being aware um, of them. So I've worked at a site in Ethiopia where there are some beautiful million-year-old footprints of uh, one of our um, ancestral species. And then the, the surface stops because the early excavators blew through the surface um, looking for a, a scrappy bit of stone tool or bone. And the, it's just a, an illustration of the fact that these days people would prize the footprints more because they're aware. There's also greater availability of tools to study them. But this massive sea change, and it is a massive sea, sea change, you can see an exponential rise in the number of discoveries and, and, and work out there. I think that that shows you just what the power of footprints will be in understanding stories like the peopling of the Americas in, in time. And I would dial back the speculation <laughs> until we've got more data points. And that's where, that's where I sit with that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, it, it is fun to speculate, but, <laughs> but, but it's great to have more evidence um, to speculate with. And that's what White Sands gives us. But, but geologists and archaeologists, what they need more than anything else, and one of the hardest things um, in life is patience. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> And it's patience to actually do the hard work, which is, in the case of footprints, lying on your stomach in the, in the driving dust, in the baking sun, excavating footprints and looking and, and working out that data. Because only by gathering that data will we get the data points to move debates away from, you know, maybes and possibilities, could be's and whatever, to actually understanding what happened. And, I am not a particularly patient man, but um, I do understand the importance of patience in science. Yes, yes. Well, you know, um, it must be incredibly hard to 
um, have lost a field season as well to COVID. Um, you're probably very excited to get back into the field um, to continue exploring. But I just wanted to ask one more question about the um, aspect of this, you know, that, that what you were talking about earlier when um, you were talking about how people can really connect to the site um, because it is footprints. It's that human feature. It's not stone tools. It's not um, stone circles, something that we don't really involve ourselves with these days, but these human footprints. And we've all, like Nancy said, seen ourselves walking along the beach and you can just visualize what you're talking about when you speak of the, the wet um, footprint left behind. And so that really makes us think about these people as people and their communities and children running around, um, frolicking around these giant sloth footprints. You just bring such a visual aspect to this. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the the collaboration with uh, tribal nations here in the United States and the descendants of these people who you are studying. And I just wanted to ask um, if you've done any collaboration, if in any indigenous Americans are working on this project with you and, um, and has there been any, any consultation with these tribal nations through the National Park Service? Yeah, okay. So there are 32 uh, affiliated group, indigenous groups to White Sands. Um, all our work is, is um, subject to consultation and clearance and, di- and, and discussion. But um, I, I am very keen to take that an awful lot further. And I believe that technology is able to embrace uh, indigenous research methods uh, in a much greater way than some other branches of, of, of science are able to. And I'm, I'm actually, you know, you, you get a big paper and the next stage is to say, oh, I need money in order to move, to, to move this forward. So my next job is to write grant applications to, 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 to fuel. And I'm actually at the moment immersed um, in literature about indigenous research methods, <laughs> as it actually happens, because um, I'm trying to take it, it through to the, ne- to, the, to the next stories. These hidden stories are, re- are really important because quite rightly, um, um, the indigenous um, people connect with these footprints in a way and they feel quite resentful that the um, scientific um, truth is the only truth that the media and others are interested in hearing. And I agree that there are many different narratives. There are many different different relational contexts um, that we need to look at. And it's these um, things that are really important to move forward. When you investigate a footprint, it is a it's 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 a very narrative-driven investigation because you're you're sitting there and you're excavating very carefully, and then you've got to work out where the next footprint will be to go and see whether you can see the subtle outlines of the next footprint or what might have been been taking place. And that's all about building stories, narratives about what might have happened, thinking about what this individual might have been doing and what, so that you can then make the next um, 
guess almost at times as to where to start looking for the next piece of evidence when you're working down a trackway. And I think there's a real point to recognise that there's multiple interpretations and narratives and they help you form the multiple working hypotheses that you're constantly deploying at, at a site. So the, the San hunter-gatherers of Namibia, um, I almost believe, and I've got some colleagues that do believe, is almost like an origin of scientific discourse. Because when they track today, what they do is they debate. They, they put forward ideas and say, I think it's actually moving in that direction. Or I think it's basically this, or it's moving that. And they put themselves into the mindset of the animal and they debate, they peer critique each other's suggestions, just as we do in science. And that's exactly what I do when I'm lying in the mud um, at White Sands with my colleagues. I come up with some wild saying, oh, it's going that way, and they're running. And then we, we look at it and we realise I'm talking nonsense. And then basically they're actually going that way and they're not running. So it, there are a whole layering of interpretation of what these footprints means that needs to be surfaces, surfaced. And we need to find a way as ichno-archaeologists, archaeologists that study ichno-traces, a way of surfing these different narratives, both the narratives that, you know, uh, conventional science would have you, you do, but also what it means to other, uh, other people and find a way of making sure that both those narratives find their way into the public domain with equal, with equal measure. And I believe that really very passionately. And, it, and, it, and it's a way of um, trying to shape the way we go forward um, at a site like this and moving forward with a, with a, a broad um, congregation of researchers with lots of different views and, and views and lots of different truths coming out of it. Matthew, that's such an important part of the research. And I think for Crystal and I, it's such a it's such a welcome thing to hear that in this research that you're doing, even with all the very scientific aspects of it, we are always looking for ways to connect not only with the public, but to really bring in indigenous views, views of, of the people themselves, views of those and understandings um, from those people whose voices haven't typically been in included. And to hear you say, yeah, you're laying there like a, a San tracker trying to hypothesize. Um, that's a fascinating way to think about doing archaeology because usually we're just opening units and then we're we're thinking about compressed time and what happened. But you're really trying to understand in the moment how those tracks were laid down and have that guiding you where you should open another place or move forward. Um Wow, what a place to bring in indigenous research methodology. I think that's amazing. And, um, and I hope that you have... I'd, I'd emphasize that, I mean, David Bustos at the park is the person that's really driven forward the, the collaboration with the 32 plus affiliated groups. And it's not the, you know, it's a rocky start. It's sure. not sure. making progress. And um, it's just for us, and particularly as an outsider, you know, I'm, 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 I'm British through and through, to actually begin to, to, to really try and embrace um, these sorts of methodologies is really important. And it is, it is for us all to try and think about the past in a more inclusive way. 
And to have it done at this point where you're early on in the project. And oftentimes what we've lamented in archaeology is that it's, it's often just an afterthought um, consultation. So it's, yeah. it's wonderful to hear that mm-hmm. David Bustos and you are right from the get-go. And it always is tricky working on a collaboration, especially when you've got that many different tribes. But I imagine the rewards of that information, um, sharing it and getting those perspectives, you know, that's the kind of work we should be doing, I think. We're trying to work out, or and, and at the moment I'm trying to work out how to frame the, the questions uh, as grantable questions, which are driven by a science research council, how I can frame those questions in such a way that they are inclusive or, or not. And I'm, I'm battling with that at the moment. And as I say, I'm totally immersed with indigenous research methods. I'm up to here with it. As I'm trying to, to work out to, to, to find a way to way forward and, and hopefully people like myself and others in different groups in different locations can start to find some um, good examples of how we take this sort of collaborative work forward. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said bringing the narrative back into it. Mm-hmm. I saw you taking a note on that yeah, too, Crystal. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I love that, that aspect, you know. Well, I, you know, when, when I talk as a scientist, I talk about the paleo poetry. The paleo poetry is when I, 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 I wax ly- lyrically um, about well, story. So you mentioned the, the double footprint trail of the, of the adolescent slash woman carrying the child on, on, on the hip. Well, the paper says that it's an adolescent, that it's carrying on, on the trip, probably on one particular hip, and it's the bald facts. But you weave a narrative around that because we've all, well, most of us have, have, have struggled with a child on the hip at some point and basically... Um, trying to rush or to do things or struggling to make things. And you, you build a much more real narrative around, uh, around that. And it's the narrative that connects people, but it's also the narrative that helps you to frame the questions and of what to look, what, what to think about, to think, to say, well, okay, if, if, if what, the adolescent slash woman was carrying the child, they must have switched hips because everybody has to switch hips at some point. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and therefore, they should be halfway down the trail. They should be a change from, from the, um, the twisting that we find in the tracks associated with that extra load on one side to the other side. So where is it? Where can I find it? And, and that's an example of a narrative driving um, I think the research questions what to what to what to look for rather than just thinking pure and simple is the data. Yeah, and I love the narrative too of just understanding the sloth crossing then the human track, stopping. You can see it stop and and rear up as if to look around, whereas the mammoth just crosses is like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but but just understanding too, you know, that those humans probably would understand that those animals might react that way. But then the, the tracks coming back after those events happened, it's such a wonderful way to, as you say, you know, you're, you have the scientific narrative, but you also have to have that human narrative. And really that's why we do this work. I think, you know, it's no fun unless we're understanding something about humans, you know, and I- I, I like to think about it as evidence storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that all scientists, particularly natural scientists of all flavors, are storytellers. 
And it's just that our stories should in the most part be based on evidence. And we try and base them on evidence, but we're evidence-based storytellers and we're at our best and we connect best with people when we're telling stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Matthew, what is next for the team um, working at White Sands? I know you're working on grants right now, but where do you think you'll go from here? What are you hoping to find next? What questions are you hoping to answer? There's what I see as uh, an obligation to the community, all communities, to actually document the site that we have in, in full detail. So what, what a science paper is, it's what, 1,800 words, it's really short, it just raises a flag and says, I've got this or we've got this, this is what we think. It's, it's important that there is a, a full site record that is fully documented uh, out there. So that, that is the less glamorous side of uh, the work. And that is what needs to really happen um, and would have happened had it not been that we missed basically two years of fieldwork. So that's the next step, is to expand on some of the excavated surfaces, to um, look higher and lower in the sequence, um, extend the, the work we're doing to try and get a full site documentation out. And we hope to do that within the next six to nine months. So that's the next priority. Then looking forward, then it's a question of thinking about all the things that I'm not going to talk about because <laughs> they are twinkles in my eye about what <laughs> I might not have found. And uh, all I can say is that there's a lot, lot more to come. This is going to be a major, majorly important site in the coming decade. Wow, we're so excited. Well, thank you, Matthew, so much for talking with us today about this. It has been such a fascinating and really important discovery. And we look forward to um, um, finding out more about what is next for your research team and, and what comes out of White Sands and all about those twinkles in your eye that you've yeah. been thinking about. <laughs> So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We want to thank our sponsors today whose support makes it possible to bring this exciting and cutting edge research directly to you through our podcast, The Dirt on the Past. So for today, our sponsor is the Western Heritage Center. And the Western Heritage Center is located in Billings, Montana. It is a museum, but they also do a lot of outreach within the Western region of Montana. Um, the Western and Eastern region of Montana. They have some wonderful exhibits at the Western Heritage Center that you should definitely go and enjoy if you're anywhere in the vicinity. If not, you can just go to their website, which is www.ywhc.org, where you can find out all about the Western Heritage Center. Right now, they have some amazing exhibits up one on women ranchers featuring the photography of Barbara Van Cleve. She's wonderful. So please check out the Western Heritage Center and thanks to them for sponsoring our podcast today. If you out there are interested in sponsoring the Dirt on the Past, we would love to have you as a sponsor. Just send us an email at info at extremehistoryproject.org. Thank you, Matthew. This has been a fantastic discussion. And thanks to all of our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up each week in your podcast app. 
We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes, but we also include links to articles, books, and other things that we discuss during the podcast. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The Dirt on the Past. past.